Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This is the ninth in a series of podcasts promoting the Seminole Wars Foundation's self-paced virtual challenge, the Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King. We launched the virtual march on December 22nd. You may still register by visiting www.seminolewars.us. American soldiers today travel with field rations, tightly stuffed in pre-packaged plastic pouches. The Army calls these 1,200-calorie delicacies the unprosaic name Meals Ready to Eat, or MREs. Soldiers themselves, however, have been known at times to call MREs something else, Meals Refused by Ethiopians, to denote that even the people of that once famine-ravaged nation would probably not want to eat them. I can personally attest that they aren't all that bad, though. Each MRE consists of a main course, such as a beef or pork patty, beans, crackers with peanut butter or cheese spread, and sometimes a cookie. Boutique grocery stores and online retailers sell them at premium prices these days to a curious public. When hot meals are unavailable, soldiers on the march may even consume three of these packages a day, and they come in a variety of entrees. Now, having whetted your appetite, let's get to our story. In December 1988, Jerry C. Morris joined a group of not especially fit middle-aged men to pace the route of Major Dade's ill-fated march of 1835, the one that ended in their annihilation by a Seminole ambush near present-day Bushnell, and which marked the start of the Second Seminole War. Jerry and his colleagues moved in period soldier attire and carried muskets with them. The food they ate, however, was modern, with modern large portions. This got Jerry to wondering during the monotonous day-long marches. What did those soldiers have to eat? His fellow marchers agreed in general on the provisions. Hard bread, salted pork, dried beans, and some vinegar. But they had no idea as to the quantities or compositions of the meals themselves. The question gnawed at Jerry in the years that followed. He scoured libraries for clues, eventually obtaining the loan of a book by Barbara K. Lucky, a national park ranger from Minnesota who had written Feeding the Frontier Army, 1775 to 1865. The book is loaded like a baked potato with all the fixins, with heaps of information on how supplies were ordered, shipped, and received, and also prepared. Jerry viewed hundreds of recipes describing how everything was cooked. He took copious notes. He purchased the ingredients. He cooked and tasted the staples. He measured for individual portions. And he constructed a public display so visitors to Seminole Wars battle reenactments could see for themselves what a soldier on the march ate. In 2012, the Summit Awards Foundation published his pamphlet, The Army Moves on Its Stomach, after an aphorism attributed to Napoleon. Jerry's conclusion, the rations were not much, but it kept him going. Jerry Morris joins us today to discuss just what it was that kept him going every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and what it was that kept him going for several years until he had learned enough to satisfy his hungry curiosity about what soldiers ate back in 1835. Jerry Morris, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. So you published a pamphlet through the Seminole Wars Foundation called An Army Moves on Its Stomach. That was Napoleon saying about his army 
that was one reason he'd done so good, because he kept them fed well. He told somebody that the Army moves on his stomach because that's what it takes to get anywhere. That's one reason he lost at Waterloo. He outdistanced his suppliers. They couldn't get enough food to eat, and his men got weak, and they lost. It sounded like a good thing to call it to me, that well, the Army moves on his stomach, like Napoleon said. <laughs> You got the idea for this pamphlet, An Army Moves on Its Stomach, when you joined a group of living historians to commemorate Major Dade's ill-fated march from Tampa that ended in Bushnell. The rations part of it is one thing that really bothered me on that march is what did these people get to eat and what did they get to eat nobody knew. They would bring us some food every morning and some food every night. Lunch was on our own. I got to wondering just what did these guys eat and talked to several of the reenactors that that knowed a little bit about it, but no one knowed exactly what they ate. They summons that. I think they had hard bread to eat. They probably had beans, but nobody knew how much or what or how they cooked it or anything. I decided that I was going to try to find out what that was, and it started about a five-year search. I finally figured it all out, what they'd done, what they ate, and how they cooked it. One of the things academics ask when approaching a research problem is, what does the literature tell us? In this case, what did the literature tell you, Jerry? Tried looking it up, and I couldn't get much information on it. I went to the Germany Library in downtown Tampa, and I looked at all the history books there, and I got a librarian to help me, and she told me to go to special sections, and I could find some mentions of it, but not much. She told me there was one book left in circulation, and it was in the library in Indiana. And she says, you know, there's a way we have loaning of books. And she says, I can get that book for you instead here. And I said, you can? I said, oh, yes, please. I gave her my phone number in about two weeks. She called me and said, the book is here if you want to come get it. And I went and checked it out. The name of the book was Feeding the Frontier Army and it had recipes, amounts, and everything. They had to order things like a year ahead of time. And that'd be hard to figure out what you're going to need next year. <laughs> they had at one time over 200 acres in wheat and corn, more of a damn farm than it was a fort. But they had to to feed them and all that. It was amazing to me that a flour to use to make the hard bread, that's what they called it back then instead of hard pack. Twice a week, an officer had to take an inventory of the flour to make sure that nobody was stealing any of it, that take how many loaves of bread that they had made and how much flour was used and how much was left. Had to write it in a bread book, as they called it. Back then, they were just making loaves of bread to feed the troops there out the fort. She gave the recipe also for hard bread. It was amazing to me how they did all of that. I took her recipe for hardtack and I made a batch of it. Like I tell my students in my class, I make small pieces to give out and for just to taste it. And they have to use your back teeth to bite it because it'll probably break your front ones. But if it's made right and dried before they pack it and stored right, it'll last three years. And that was the beauty of it. It was something that they could make that if the person needed for the nutrition, that would last that long. It could be shipped to places. Jerry, from your description of the hard bread, I now understand an old Army cadence I used to chant in basic training. They say that in the Army, the food is mighty fine. A biscuit rolled off the table and killed a friend of mine. <laughs> in the 1960s, the U.S. Army started collecting stories from veterans of the Spanish-American War. One veteran wrote back and included with his response some hardtack that he had kept all those years. And he said it was as good back in 1898 as it is today. <laughs> I've had some that's just kept it and kept it. And it was four years old and it was still good. 
Hard bread or hard tack is famous for soldier stories of eating it and finding worms in it. Were worms part of the recipe? Not really. <laughs> the recipe that this girl had figured out turned out to be just what would be the amount that a soldier would have got for one day's rations on a march. Now, the rations that I show are what they used on one day of marching and what they got to eat for that day. And I got that mostly from Frank's book. He listed the amount up on page, I think, 33 of Massacre. He listed of how much rations that they gave to go in the wagon to go with them. They gave them their first day's rations to carry in their haversack. They loaded the rest of it, and he's got it in so many quarts of peas and so many ounces of salt and stuff, everything that's in it. I figured out from that how much it would be per day for each person. I got it all together and figured out how much it would be and bought me some little bottles with a, a wire thing to close it with. It looked kind of authentic that way, but it, it never was broke down into that small amount. But it's just the amount, if you look at it, you've got to figure the guy marched at least 15, maybe 20 miles that day, and that's what he's getting to eat for supper and breakfast. <laughs> and it was the same thing for breakfast that he had for supper every day. The book that I got from Miss Lucky showed different ways to cook different things. If you're cooking it for an officer, you cooked it one way. If you cooked it for a listed man, you'd cook it for another way. <laughs> if you're cooking it for a home, you'd cook it another way. The recipe would be a little bit different, make it better. The good thing about the hard bread was during that time and during the Indian Wars time, it was still good to eat. By the time the Civil War came along, people had wanted to make money, that's all. This was back in the 1835s, you had to swear to a lot of things. And if your word wasn't any good, you wasn't a good person. And if you swore to something, you'd done that. That was a chiseled in stone. There being one way to prepare it for officers, one way to prepare it for enlisted, and one way to prepare it for home. What was different about them? Well, they'd put a little more seasoning in it and a little less seasoning, you know, whoever it was for. The soldier was on the bottom. <laughs> And it's just, I, I can't recall from the, reading the book so many years ago exactly what they were, but they were different recipes for different people. And I didn't know this, and they still use some of this today, is the way it's set on the table. The food, it showed the way you'd set a, a table for an officer. It wasn't set for a enlisted menu. They'd dip some out for you. Now, the, at home, the meat would be set in a certain place and like that. I've ever been to a real fancy restaurant where they do all that, but that's the way they got started there. It was, used to be that way. Talk a little bit about what would a soldier get for breakfast, what would a soldier get for lunch, what would a soldier get for dinner, and how this differed from garrison and then being on the march. At each fort, they had a garden. Every fort, if they had a people that stayed there all the time, they had a garden there. So you got to eat a lot better at the fort. But on a march, the surgeon that put the meal together for the marching troops said it wasn't much, but it was enough to keep you going. And that's all you needed was to get from one point to another point. When you got there, you was going to have a good meal, and you was going to have a good meal before you left. You had to carry enough what you could carry and what the horses could pull and stuff. It's what least amount was what you needed. They got a piece of hard bread. It's about an eighth an inch thick, and it's three inches square. And it's got nine holes punched on each side of it to let steam out while it's baking. And it's as hard as a rock. It has to be thoroughly cooked for it to last. And at that time, they used the best flour that they could get. Usually, they used baking flour or cake flour. It had been sifted better and just paid more attention to when they made it. And it didn't have any weevils and things in it. 
the time the Civil War came along, this whatever flower that gets what they used, and that's the reason they talk about it. it had so many weevils and stuff in it. At this time, they were making out of such good flour, it didn't have it. It wasn't baked for it. This is one of the places they baked that was in uh, Baltimore. They had big bakeries there. I've got two boxes that I made that holds 50 pounds of hard bread, and it's about two foot wide and about 18 inches high, about 36 inches long, and then made out of a half inch lumber. They'd put it, stack that full with 50 pounds, nail a lid on it, and they shipped it that way. If you tried to make enough hard bread in Tampa, they'd have to cut down every tree in Florida before they got everything, <laughs> got the bread made. There was no coal here to use or anything. It was shipped in from bakeries that was just what they'd done all day long. And it had to be ordered. You had to get all orders, had to be approved and things like that. So they got 18 ounces of that a day and if you they take 18 ounces out, that's uh, about 21 pieces it works out. And that's seven for morning and seven for night to be cooked with their beans and seven pieces to carry in your haversack that no one that you own during the day. They got 12 ounces of salt pork. And amazingly enough, you can still buy that at the supermarket and it's still doled out in 12 ounce packages. I don't know how they ever got settled on that, but you buy just exactly the right amount. So in my thing, I just got a piece of wood cut out the same size of what 12 ounces is, and I wrapped up brown paper and it looked like the same thing. They got five-eighths of an ounce of salt today, and with the salt pork, I don't know why they would have needed that, but then they got uh, three-quarters of an ounce of coffee that day, and that's not much coffee. It takes that much to make one cup, really. Now, we use more than that, really. I never could find out if the beans were already baked or not. I think they were already baked because they wouldn't have no way to bake them over again. Never have been able to find out if they were already baked. That's about it. Besides, they got an ounce and a quarter of vinegar a day. And I had a hard time to figure out what in the world you put vinegar in there for. I figured, well, maybe they put it in the beans to take the gas out of it. And then I found out it was to prevent the scurvy. They called all the British sailors limeys. They get the scurvy on those long ships trips that they took and it was because they didn't have anything but vitamin C in it. They found out if they took some limes with them and eat the limes they didn't get scurvy. They didn't know why they just know that worked and somebody figured out that there was a lot of vitamin C in vinegar. So they got that ounce and a quarter of vinegar every day and probably poured it over their beans. Don't say. They didn't get any fried eggs or fried bacon or anything like that. The army at that time thought fried goods was bad for you. The beans never did get really how they did cook them, but the cooking them myself and figuring out how they cooked them. When they got to wherever they was going to sleep for the night, they broke up into what they call a four-man mess. I don't know why they call it a mess. I guess just a mess for a big time. And they needed four men because one guy had to do the cooking. The other three guys had to build a camp for the night. Somebody had to chop down some trees to make a fire and stuff. Somebody had to stand guard duty. And the cook, he just cooked. So it's a pretty easy job to be the cook. You figure it out this way. When they got to where they was going to camp, the cook would have some little bags that he went to the wagon that carried all the supplies and he'd draw the meals, the food for the day and the next morning. And he'd go back and start his cooking. If you measure out beans, you can't just cook dried beans. It take forever to get soft. But you can do it the quick way of putting the beans in the pot with some water and then boil for about 10 minutes and then set them aside for an hour. So that'd be the first thing he'd done to get some water and put it in his can. It's about the size of a gallon paint can, a little bit bigger than that. But he'd put the beans in there in the water and let that boil. Then he'd start breaking up the hard bread to go in the stew. And he'd take 21 pieces of hard bread, seven from each guy, 
and take 25 pieces and break it up with a mortise and pestle into pieces about the size of a quarter. By that time he got all that done, the water's boiled and he'd tuck it off the fire and that set for 15, 20 minutes and then he could throw the beans in it and put all the pieces of broke up hardtack in it, hang it back over the fire and let it cook. And he'd chop up the bacon for each one of the guys and put it in there with the beans. As it's cooking, it soaks up all of the juice from the, the beans and the water and the bacon all soaks up into that hard bread and it actually makes like bean dumplings and it's some of the best beans you've ever eaten in your life. They really taste good but you'd only got one serving a piece and be all there was and it maybe three quarters of a cup maybe a, a toast to a cup but anyway each one got a serving of that they had a serving ladle that they used and that pot would be about empty when you got four people and if there's any leftover somebody might get a little bit for seconds but that was it and he done walked 15 miles today and that's what was supper <laughs> a ladle of beans some hard bread not much but enough to keep you going after while everybody else was making their bed and get ready to go to sleep and stuff like cook would do the same thing over again and put it back in the pot dig a hole by that time the fire had burned down a bunch of big embers there He'd dig a hole right beside that and put the pot with all the stuff in it in there and cover it up with coals and then put some dirt over the top just leave the handle sticking up and it stayed in there all night and when they got up in the morning at seven o'clock they got up they pulled that up out of the ground and breakfast was ready and that's what it was the same thing you had for supper every day every day every day and on the march, they had the hardtack to nibble on. Yeah, they had seven pieces in their haversack, and then they had uh, four ounces of salt pork in there with it. And they could take a bite of the salt pork. They'd take a piece of the hard bread and hold it in their hand and pour a little water over it to soften it up a little bit. And they could take a bite of the salt pork and the hard bread, and that was their lunch. They didn't stop for lunch. They stopped every hour or two, maybe take a five, ten minute break, but they didn't stop and do a lunch. It was just two meals a day. I have heard, Jerry, that the officers had one kind of coffee, real coffee, and the enlisted had some other type of coffee, chicory or something. What can you say about that? I've never heard of that. In fact, the officers had to hire somebody to cook for them. Even at the post, they had someone hired to cook the officers' food. And the officers had to pay him to do that, came out of his pay. He could get it fixed any way he wanted to. And if he wanted good coffee, he could buy from a southern, he could buy better coffee, I guess. But he got an allowance. And a lot of things ain't fair in the Army. Is that an officer, because of his rank, got fed more than an enlisted man. Like Major Dade would have got two rations a day, or I think a major even got three rations a day. A captain got two rations a day. And his horse got exactly the same amount. Like if a lieutenant's horse got so much hay, Major Dade's horse got three times that much. <laughs> I don't know why his horse is said better, but I guess these horses supposed to look better. I don't know. And when you say rations, Jerry, same rations as the troops were getting, but just more? On the mark, he would get you know, whatever he could afford to have bought or something like that. I think they probably just brought supplies just like the men did on the march. There's nothing that I found in all my research that how much more an officer got or anything. It just that the officer had his own person to cook for him. What about water? Did they just wait to go to a stream to get some water for their canteens? That, that's about it. Yes. As John Wayne said in one of his movies one time, he said every time he met somebody in Texas, they had to tell him how they drank water out of the hoof print of a horse. <laughs> it was about that way. I think that's what a lot of the sickness was from, was from the water that they drank. 
People got so sick at Fort Foster that they had to close the fort. Well, they Fort Foster, they did a survey of where it was at and stuff. And they never did find a well, or they never found an outhouse of a train. It could be that the guys was using the river to poop in, and is using the river for water. And that might have been what was making them sick. Was Army Chow back at the fort fairly uniform, or did it vary from location to location? According to where the fort was at is what they got to eat, what they could grow in their garden. Like Tampa at Fort Brook, they had an orange grove for a while. And then Tampa, that Hillsborough Bay was so full of fish that two men could take a rowboat and catch the rowboat full of fish in less than two hours. And that was enough to feed everybody in the camp and most of the people, the settlers and everything else. And then whatever's left over, they throw in the garden for fertilizer. But there's so many fish in Hillsborough Bay that they came all the way from Cuba to fish there. And the first people that settled in Tampa, there was those fishermen. And they would come and catch fish and they would dry them out in what Bayshore Avenue is now. And where the little creek ran into it, they would dry them out so they got their boat full of it and go back to Cuba and sell it. But that was the first people that came to Tampa who called there was so many fish in that bay. But other forts weren't like that. And according to where the fort was, was how good of a garden they could do in there and how good the hunting was. So there was plenty of stuff to hunt here everywhere. The meat wasn't a problem. There was wild cows left over from the soda and pigs, stuff like that. And there's turkeys, just everything to eat. Jerry, you got all these recipes, and from these recipes, you actually prepared this food and tried it out yourself. I did, yes. One time we had a meeting at the battlefield, and I brought the food, and I brought the army food for that day. <laughs> Everybody liked it. And then you took this together and saved it in a way that you could have an exhibit to uh, instruct people and share your information? I made a little display, and each one in a bottle that the people could see. It's about a six-by-six six little wooden thing that holds all the bottles. And then another bottle that held a heart attack. I understand you received high praise from a co-founder of the Seminole Wars Foundation and an author of a Seminole history of the Second Seminole War. Tell us about that. I made a display of what soldiers got to eat for one day. I give classes all day long on what the people got to eat there at the battlefield. I give classes and was at the battlefield one day and Dr. Mahan was there and I got him to go out to my car and I showed him what I had made. I said, this is one day's rations for what a soldier got for a day. And he was kind of an intimidating man. Before he died, he was around quite a bit. Maybe six foot four or so, and he's kind of an intimidating person. And very smart. He was head of the history department at the University of Florida, so he must have been smart. He looked at it and looked at it, and finally he smiled and he said, no, Jerry, this is something awesome that you've done here. He said, I've talked about this food a lot. I've always wondered about it. First time I ever seen it. He said, this is remarkable. <laughs> now, this is a very smart person and a very historical person. And here I am. I don't even have a high school education. I got a GED. <laughs> and, and this professor is telling me how good it is. Now, that, that'll make anybody feel good, I think. Jerry, what was most striking to you about what the Army ate? A small amount of it. You know, I know I wanted more to eat that when we'd done the march. It was hard to get that stuff, too. That salt in Florida, they boiled it down from salt water. And that's one thing that Florida done, and even in the Civil War, they plied the soldiers with salt. They had a place over by Indian Rocks Beach, which is off the causeway going over to Clearwater. And they had a place over there that they boiled the water down, made salt, and packaged it up. Without salt, you're in pretty bad shape. A lot of places where they didn't have the salt or to get salt, they mined it. And Florida had plenty of salt, just all you had to do was boil it down the water. They got a lot of pine trees to do that. And it's not just as a flavoring, you need salt for your body. 
Yes, exactly. I remember in the Army, we had to take salt pills all the time. They finally realized that wasn't a good thing to do. Tell us about your most memorable time discussing Army rations with the public. One of the biggest compliments that I got from the book was I got to where I couldn't walk good enough to do the reenactment anymore. I stood up my little shit. One day during a battle, I didn't go down and watch it. I just sat there, was tired, and give four or five classes that morning. Everybody's down watching the battle. And a guy come in with his little girl. She's maybe four or five years old. And he said, can we sit out here? And I said, sure. So I did. It's a classroom in the shade right here. <laughs> I got benches and stuff under the, the fly of my tent. And the little girl was sort of interested in what I had on the, the table there in front of her. And she started looking at it. And I said, would you like to hear what I talked about here? And she said, yeah. So I'd done a complete class for her. I started just like I did with this 100 people looking. And I'd done it with her. And I'd pick up something and show it. And she would take it and look at it. And then she paid more attention than anybody ever gave the class to. Her dad just sat back there smiling the whole time because she was so interested. And she was so interested because... I could do it on a level that she could understand. Her dad really thanked me for it when, by that time the battle was over and they left and never got her name or nothing. But I always remembered her opinion one time that of all the people I've done it for, I always remember her. We say behind every great man is an even greater woman. What can you tell us about the great woman behind you in your life, Jerry? Without my wife, Linda, I couldn't have done any of this. Linda showed me how to use a computer. Linda helped me with my classes. 99% of the time she was with me when I'd done a class, uh, she dressed in a period costume. She was my washerwoman, and I made a washboard for her to show how they used it. She usually passed out the hard tack, the hard bread for me. And for a while, I used honey. We'd put a piece of, a little spoonful of honey on the hard bread for him to get him to eat it better. But for the last, you no know, 10 years, I haven't been able to even put my tent up myself. And she gets her and somebody else puts up my tent for me things. Without her, I couldn't have done it. Her name is Linda, and uh, without her, I couldn't have done any of it. Jerry Morris, thank you so much for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Well, I enjoyed talking about it, but thank you so much for asking me to do this. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.